0: Well, I am glad to be with you guys. Normally, I like to start by letting people kind of tell me a little bit about themselves, but they cut my time from 60 minutes to 45 minutes, and I need, I need 80 minutes, so I, I won't be able to hear. I tried to get around and meet most of you before to hear kind of your stories. I'm going to uh, share with you some stuff about rural church planting, and I'm proof that God has a sense of humor. I grew up in a big city in the Midwest, had never lived in a rural area until I moved to this little town of 800 people. The first week there, I like to walk in the mornings, and the very first week, I was taking a walk, and this old milk cow had gotten loose from the from the pasture and we're standing in the middle of the road and I was like terrified. I didn't know what to do. To the, what to Our milk cows, they have fangs or horns and they kill you. So I'm frozen in the middle of the road. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. And some old guy come by in a pickup truck and said, what you doing? I said, well, there's this killer cow loose. And he just laughed just like that and drove away. And there I stood. I finally found out that she wasn't dangerous at all. But anyway, that was my first week in a rural area, and now somehow, 19 years later, that got me telling you guys, you probably live in rural areas all your life, something about rural ministry, God has a sense of humor for sure. Uh, I do talk fast, uh, so you'll have to listen fast, but that's good, if you say amen, I talk even faster, and we get done faster, so it's up to you. Anyway, now, I'm going to share a lot of experiences that I I know are accurate for the Northeast, Uh, I know there's a lot of folks here from Alabama, I'll be curious to hear afterwards uh, if it fits Alabama, I already don't know if it does, but my goal, my goal for any meeting like this is that people will walk away with one good, solid idea. If you get one good idea out of any session you go to, I think that makes that session worthwhile. So I hope you'll get one good idea out of it all. Well, what I want to start talking about is sort of the stereotype of what, when people think rural ministry, when you say that, there are certain things that come to mind. And if we had the hour and a half that I'd like to have... I'd let you tell me all those stereotypes, and we'd write them all on the board over there, and, and you'd help me figure that out. But since we don't have that time, I'm going to tell you <laughs> some of the stereotypes. You know, typically in a rural area, you know, everyone knows everyone. There's lots of connections, you know, very connected. Everybody's connected to everybody in some way. You know, they're their cousin, or they're married to their cousin, or they're divorced from their cousin, or whatever, they, whatever. They went to college with their cousin. Uh, many of the people are related by blood or marriage uh, to a significant portion of the population. I learned real quick when I moved to rural areas area, don't say anything negative about anybody, and I, I learned that by saying something negative, oh, so-and-so made me so mad at that last church business meeting, don't say that, because that's somebody's cousin, anyway, so, and they, they can fight amongst themselves, that's okay, but you better not say anything about them, because then you've crossed the line there, that's pretty stupid, stereotypical, oftentimes they have low levels of racial diversity, Um, For instance, Vermont is one of the whitest states in the nation, so pretty much all of our communities are all white. Uh, If you're in Alabama, you'd have a whole rural community of African Americans. If you were in Texas, you might have a whole community of Hispanics. But oftentimes, there's not nearly the racial diversity that you might have in the city where you have 75 nationalities in two blocks radius of each other. All right? A lot of times in rural communities, there's the unofficial rules of how to get things done. That works in both city government or town government. It works in the church. It works in the school. You know, maybe you're supposed to follow these procedures and do whatever, but you find out that if you go see so-and-so and and talk to them and they get on your good side, it's all going to happen whether you ever fill out all the paperwork or not. And the way you usually find out about the unofficial rules is you usually break one of them, and then someone sets you straight. So that's not how we do things around here. And then you figure out how we do things around here. So that's rural Oftentimes they're more conservative, politically, than urban areas. That's not always the case, but most of the time they are, and and they're always scratching their head, you know, thinking, why in the world did such and such get elected? Because that's not what anyone in my town voted, but that's just the way it works. Uh... They're oftentimes more respectful of religion in general, though a lot of people don't go to church. A growing number of people in rural areas don't go to church at all, but there is a certain general respect of the church house and the pastor and the deacon or whatever, a certain general respect. And they oftentimes have lower crime rates in urban areas, though I have had some interesting discussions of late with people about the rates of domestic violence and child abuse, about whether it's actually lower in rural areas or if it just doesn't get reported because remember everybody's related to everybody so am I really going to rat out my cousin and even if I do rat out my cousin the sheriff is somebody's cousin so he's not talking about it either and so I'm not 100% sure if there's actually less crime or if it's just that it doesn't get reported so it's a lower crime rate all right and then oftentimes they have a lower educational level though that's In Vermont, where I happen to live, we happen to have the highest per capita of bachelor degree holders in the nation. So Vermont does not fit that. But frequently in rural areas, you have a lower educational level. Now, does that sound like the communities any of you live in? Does that sound like kind of the stereotypical rural community? That's the way a lot of them are. But here's what's interesting. What's going on right now is that rural communities are rapidly changing. In the last 20 years, Grandpa's Town doesn't look a lot like what we just described. But a lot of us in our minds, because that's the stereotype, we still think that that's the way our town is. And of course, when we go to start a church, we're trying to sort of meet that thing that we think the town is, and oftentimes it isn't anymore. It's very, very different. Let's talk about some of those changes. Uh, you know, you can still find those rural stereotypes. Let me just get all of it out here. Whoops, let's go back there. Uh, You know, you can still find those rural stereotypes, but they are not as predominant as they once were. If you actually start doing some of the research and some of the math and some of the demographics, you find out that. That it's not as big as it once was. It's well-educated and politically active families. You have any of those outsiders that have moved into your community and want to change everything. In Vermont, we are depending on where you live in Vermont, you're anywhere from two and a half to three and a half hours from Boston. You're anywhere from six to eight hours from New York City. And so all them, big city folk want to come to Vermont and because they want to get away from big city life, and then what's the first thing they want to do is turn the little town they've moved to into being just like the city they just left from. Does that happen in any of your rural communities? Yeah, probably, all right. So as they've become frustrated with urban life and disenchanted with suburban sprawl, they're moving to rural areas. And then sometimes native people, you know, the people who grew up in that town, you know, they go off to the big city and they work for three or four years. Then they come back home and they got all these ideas. You know, they're gonna, they are going—they come back to work in the family business and they're going to change it and modernize it and do all this stuff to it. And, and all those ideas are bringing real change, real change to rural communities. You know, the, the advent of technology... Has made this possible. You know, when I moved to Vermont 19 years ago, I could probably count on two hands the number of places around my area that I could get a cell phone signal. <laughs> you know, and I like keep track of Okay, honey, honey, I'll, I'll, I'll get to you in five minutes and I can get a signal on top of the hill. Now it's the opposite. Even though Vermont's very rural, there's very few places in Vermont that you can't get a cell phone signal. And that's happening all over the country. Uh, you know, when I moved to Vermont, no one had cable TV, very few people had satellites. Now, there's, now houses have two satellites. I can't imagine why you need two satellite disks. Well, because I couldn't get this ball game on that channel, so I had to get this one over here. It's like, you've got to be kidding. You know, all this technology, uh, it's allowed people to keep the same job they used to have to live in the city to get, but now they can live out in that rural town. You know, in our area, you know, the lady that lives across the street from me, uh, she's a lobbyist in, in, New York, in, in Washington, D.C., and the third floor of her house, an old farmhouse, she's turned into this really ultra super cool like like I kinda envious a little bit of it and covet it a little bit. I have to repent every time I look at it. But she's got this super cool office up there and she works there all the time from her office and on Friday morning she gets on a plane at six A. M. and flies from Vermont to Washington DC, does whatever meetings, face to face meetings she has to do. Then she flies back to Vermont that evening. And she used to pay my daughter, when my daughter was 13, she would pay my daughter $16 an hour to watch her kids while she was home. Oh, my daughter loved that woman. (laughs) It was crazy, and there she was. Now, eventually, she decided to run for school board, and she got elected. Now, what kind of ideas do you think she brought to the school board? It was ideas people in Vermont had never heard of before. You know, it was, it was something and in her mind. Why wouldn't she do those kind of things? By the way, her father uh, was a congregational minister who helped organize some of Dr. Martin Luther King's marches. So she was all up there about civil rights. But the word civil rights now has a different meaning, at least in Vermont, than what it did when Martin Luther King uh, did that kind of stuff. And that's all over, all over Vermont. It's probably in your area too. The technology has allowed people to do that. You know, it's not just outsiders who are changing the nature of rural communities. That same technology has brought all those ideas from the world to the rural communities. You know, you think think about this. There was a time when teenagers, you know, in a rural community were kind of, protected from all the craziness going on in urban areas you know and they would be five years ten years maybe 20 years behind urban areas Uh, now we're about five minutes behind now now older people in your community they may still not have the internet and they may still not know anything but anyone under 30 in a rural community i mean they're texting tweeting facebooking i mean they're connected Uh, two weeks ago i was in haiti now haiti is the poorest nation uh, in the western hemisphere Uh, it is extremely rural but we go over this mountain three hours over a mountain in this little village i mean they're all just living in dirt and what do all the teenagers have they all got cell phones and they all want to know if they can friend request me on facebook i'm like you don't have any food how can you have a f- cell phone it's happening all right technology Listen, they're all connected they're up to date on music clothing styles and ideological concepts is their urban counterparts now the senior adults in your church may not be but young people in your community they're not that much different anymore than urban young people. I had this girl tell me the other day, now we live, you, you guys, maybe in the South, you call them rednecks. In, in Vermont, we call them woodchucks. Same thing, okay? <clears throat> so anyway, so we have these woodchucks and they have this uh, red flannel shirt and a pickup truck and you know all that kind of stuff. And so this girl, she come up to me and she told me that she was an emo redneck. And her name is Becca. I said, Becca, what? I don't even know what that means. What is an emo redneck? I mean, she's pierced all over the place. Looks like her head's stuck in a tackle box, you know, and all this stuff. But she's got on her red flannel shirt and all these piercings everywhere and tattoos everywhere. And she's got black fingernail no polish. And she's, yeah, this is like a new thing, emo redneck. And so somehow she's got all the, this picture of all these piercings from somewhere. And she's decided she wants to look like that. But, you know, flannel shirts is what she still wear. And so she's somehow mixed the two together. And I'm like, I have never even heard of that people group. And I think they speak a different language than the one I speak. But that's the new rural area, and it's very different from what most of us were used to. But you know, rural adults are now being exposed to more progressive ideas and and kind of concepts than ever before, too. And some of them are buying into it. Some rural adults, people who good Christian, used to be good Christian families, now hardly ever go to church, and they're all about, you know, they think gay marriage is acceptable. I mean, why in the world would we want to discriminate against those people? And you're going, whoa, whoa. Didn't you used to teach Sunday school? I mean, it's a whole new idea. Where did they get that from? Well, they didn't get it from probably a discussion down at the country store. They got it from reading something on the Internet, watching one of those upper channels on cable TV or whatever, and they they got all that stuff, and it's there. Well, how does this impact church planting in rural areas? Well, the influx of people and ideas is rapidly transforming the rural mindset into a more postmodern way of thinking. Now, who knows what postmodern is? Anyone know what that is? Yeah, that's about what I thought. (laughs) And most of the people in your community don't know what postmodern is either, but it's the way they think. Now, people in urban areas have been dealing with this for years. matter of fact, they've been dealing with it for so long, they don't even use the word anymore. The word postmodern has kind of become passe in urban areas. We don't even use it anymore. But now these ideas are filtering down to the rural areas, and we don't even know what it is. Uh, We don't know how to deal with it, but we better learn how to deal with it. It's basically, and I'm going to sum it up. There's whole books that have been written about it, but I'm going to sum it up in one sentence. Postmodernism is the idea that individuals have both the intelligence, that's a key word, and the right to decide what truth is without any objective standards. So in other words, I'm smart enough to figure out for myself what truth is, and I have the right to figure it out for myself, and I don't need anything objective. Now, what do we think is objective? The Word of God, all right? Maybe if you're in a legalistic church, the pastor, all right? Maybe our parents, maybe even the government. Well, postmodern people are saying, no, 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 no one's going to tell me what the truth is. I'm going to figure it out for myself, and I'm smart enough to do it. Now, are we? (laughs) Think about that through. Are we? (laughs) No. When we try to figure it out for ourselves, we generally make a big mess of things. Adam and Eve tried to figure it out for themselves, and they're the one that started the whole mess. Okay, Uh, The guy said yesterday that there's no new thing under the sun. Postmodernism, that's a fancy word we've pulled out to impress ourselves, but this concept has been around for, for millennium. All right, But now it's becoming more prevalent and people in our local rural community that born and bred right there and should know the difference no longer realize that. To them, just because the pastor said it or the church said it or even the Bible said it doesn't necessarily mean anything to them. And that's impacting our rural church planting because the idea is the things that we used to do to start a rural church. And there's two ways to start a rural church. All right, One is to have a passion for some people in a community and you go in to just start loving them and start a church. The other is to have a business meeting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You'll get that in a minute, but anyway, uh, you know we used to have these systems where we started rural churches, and those systems aren't working anymore because the people. Now, if you want to, if you want to do the business meeting route, you can still do it that way. All right, you can still have a church split, and within two years, you can have about seventy people gathered around you who are all mad at their last pastor, and in two years, they'll be mad at you. But you can have a building, and you can have it all, and it can be very nice if you just want to reach all the disgruntled Southern Baptists and throw in a couple of Pentecostals or whatever, and you can do that. All right, but if we want to reach unchurched people, lost people, which is what I want to do. I'm not interested in just getting all the disgruntled people. I've been that way, done that route. You can have all those people back, okay? i got a few Southerners who've moved to Vermont that I'd like to send back to you because they drive me nuts. All right, you know, uh, but if we want to reach unchurched people, then we've got to figure out all this stuff, because this is where the unchurched people are. All right? Uh, Postmodernism is built on the individual's person's experiences and relationships. It doesn't care about absolute truth. So now, I want you to focus on the individual experiences and relationships. That's That's how they decide what truth is. Now, you can learn some truth from those things, but I don't think that that's the best place to get truth from. But you can learn some truth from relationships. I mean, many of us have friends who've taught us things. Many of us have had experiences in our life in which we learned something valuable from the Lord. So there is some truth that can be found from there. But you can also get yourself in a mess because does everything your friends tell you is right? No, <laughs> obviously not. Uh, do all of our own experiences, aren't experiences sometimes deceiving? I mean, how many times have we made a decision because we thought it looked good and it seemed good, and then later we said, oh, if only I'd known these three pieces of information, I would have made a different experience. Our experiences are limited. And so, though you can find some truth that way, it's not a very good foundation for building a life, but that's what people, what they're building a life on now. Um, the interesting thing is, is that even though they're making their own decisions about truth, postmodern people are actually interested in learning about spirituality. They just want to do it on their own terms. But they actually are interested. Um, you know, my neighbor who lives across the street, who's a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., I mean, she considers herself a very spiritual person. And for eight years, she's told me that eventually she's coming to church, because she's very spiritual. haven't seen her yet. But anyway, you know, but she's very spiritual. I mean, after all, her father, helped Dr. Martin Luther King, but she's very spiritual. Now, I don't think she's very spiritual, but in her mind, she's a very spiritual person. And, and frequently they are. And they, oftentimes they've read stuff. You know, I know 15-year-olds who've read big old fat books on, on Buddhism and on Confucius thought and all that kind I can't get them to read the Bible and they won't do their homework, but they'll read these big fat books because some person, some celebrity somewhere talked about it on the Oprah Winfrey Show and now they, you know, that's the cool newest thing and so I've got to figure out all that stuff. Zen Buddhism and Transcendental Meditation or whatever, you know, as they sit in their flannel shirts in the barn, you know, they're doing all this stuff. Yeah, for these emo uh, woodchucks or rednecks or whatever it is you want to call them. Um... Now, the challenge for us, of course, well, at least for me, I assume you guys would agree with me on this, is I'm not going to give up my biblical values and my biblical absolutes. I'm just not. as Those are non-negotiable for me, and I hope they're non-negotiable for you. But at the same time, we have to figure out how am I going to connect to these people who want to make up their own version of truth when I'm trying to give them a truth that's from the Scriptures. And what I've had to learn to do in Vermont is, is that a lot of the problem is our man-made traditions. Now, I know you get in trouble when you start talking about that because we have confused... Our man-made traditions with scripture, and somehow we have to, 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 to get rid of our our traditions and figure out I shouldn't say get rid of them. We have to be willing to get rid of them. some of them we might be able to keep, but there may be others that we have to get rid of, and we have to figure it out. For instance, a lot of young people, you know maybe your young people all like to get up at six a.m and you know be early risers. Most young people I know don't, you know they, they, they would love for us to have church on like Friday night, about five or six o'clock, and they can have the whole weekend for free. Uh, now, how many of your established churches in a rural community are going to do that? Give up their Sunday morning service and have Friday night services? Probably none. I can't imagine any of them doing that, all right? So, <clears throat> so the complicated part is when they start saying that kind of stuff, we say, well, but, 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 but Sunday morning, like, that's when we're supposed to worship God. We're supposed to give God Sundays. The Bible says that. Where does the Bible say that? The Bible does say, remember, the Sabbath to keep it holy... But when was the Sabbath? Yeah, and if you know when it started, it actually started on Friday nights at sundown. and went until Saturday at sundown. So actually, (laughs) it'd be more biblical to have services on Friday nights. Just try, try selling that to your deacons in your next deacon meeting, okay? I can just tell you where it's going, okay? By the way, I've got churches in Vermont that need to be planted, so when you get fired, just call me, okay? We'll work that through, okay? That's how I recruit church planners. you know? You know the reality is is it's, it's a challenge. Uh, many existing churches are going to struggle with giving up their traditions. I mean, they're just not going to make that change. They're just not, okay? And honestly, can we blame them? I mean, for an 80-year-old lady who's been going to church for 60 years at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, It's probably too much to expect her to give that up. All right, it's just not going to happen. So, what do we have to do? We're going to have to start new churches that have this kind of stuff built in from the beginning. So, it's what we've been doing all over Vermont. We've been doing it for a long time. Now I'm going to show you some ideas that worked for us. These may not work for you. They work for us. 11 years ago, we had 17, 17 churches and two missions. Today, we have 37 churches and six missions. That's in 11 years. Uh, Vermont is the least religious state in America. Uh, it was the last state to have Southern Baptist work. Uh, we have the highest percentage of nuns, and that doesn't mean Catholic nuns. Nun is an N-O-N-E, meaning people who have no religion at all, uh, is in Vermont. We also have the highest number or ratio of, of, of American adult converts to buddhism the highest per capita in vermont and anywhere else so we have a lot of people doing that Uh, so it's not like we're you know we're not alabama Georgia, and mississippi where everyone's just going to church if we get one started we've had to work very hard to make this work and yet it's happened we've we've doubled our churches in this period of time let me show you just five quick things that we've done and i'm going to talk a little bit about each one i wish i could talk a lot more about each one but we only got the time frame ahead of us one of the things we've had to do is embrace technology i'll talk more about that in a few minutes Tell I me, mean, that's a tough one. It sounds easy when you put it up there. It's not so easy when you try to convince some old church to embrace technology. It's not easy trying to get a pastor to do it. Uh, uh, number two, bivocationalism and lay ministry. The key word there is the word embrace. Rural areas have always had bivocationalism and lay ministry, but usually we're struggling against it. It's our, we're trying our best to not be bivocational what we've had to say in Vermont is let's stop fighting that battle. Let's embrace it. Let's make it part of our missional plan because it's not going to work any other way. Uh, number three, embrace racial diversity. Number four, use existing church buildings when possible. I'm going to talk to you about that. We That worked really well for us, and I'll tell you how we've done that. And then number five, get outside the walls of the church and the community. Now, someone's looking at that think, thinking, well, there ain't nothing in there that's innovative at all. You're right. What did the guy say last night? There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Everything we've done in Vermont, someone did once before. You know, if I had some secret little pink pill that you could take and suddenly start you know ten thousand churches uh, i wouldn't be here i'd be out somewhere signing books and making a lot of money somewhere <laughs> selling pink pills all right there is no secret pill that you can take that'll make you have ten thousand rural churches in alabama or georgia or mississippi next week it's just not happening uh, but these are some things you can do let me talk through them real quick uh, Postmodern people are more virtual. These young people, again, your seven-year-olds in your church, they may not know what the internet is, all right. But anyone who's 40 and under, they they know what it is and they're on it, and that's where they're getting their information. Uh, they often like to socialize via technology more than in person. Now, I went to all kinds of witness training programs, you know, faith and EE and continuing witness training, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but no one ever taught me how to lead a person to the Lord on Facebook. But I've had to do it several times now. You get in little, the little chat box and you just start talking. They talk back. Those same people would not talk to me face-to-face. They're too uncomfortable with that. But they'll tell me all their stuff and ask all their questions. And then I say, okay, pray this prayer. <laughs> and they'll start typing it back out. And I'll say, did you mean that when you typed that? Anyway, yes, I did. All right. I, haven't, I haven't figured out how to do a Facebook baptism yet. But anyway, we. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they're really comfortable with that. You know, uh, To me, it's weird, or I'm really uncomfortable with it. But the question is, am I there for me, or am I there for the gospel to go forth? If I'm there for the gospel to go forth, I just had to learn to do some of that stuff. You know, new churches in rural areas, they're just going to have to to figure out how to use Facebook, Twitter, text messaging, blogs, websites. you just got to figure it all out. And and I have pastors, existing churches, I tell pastors all the time this stuff, well, I've been doing it this way for 40 years, I don't need that stuff. And I say, well, that's why you got a bunch of 70-year-olds, and there's all these 30-year-olds in your community who who aren't going to come. All right, listen, people no longer look in the Yellow Pages. If you want to start a new church, I wouldn't even waste your money on a Yellow Page ad. Now, that used to be the best money you could spend. All right, now, that doesn't mean anything. You've got to have all this stuff. You know, we use Facebook a lot. And if you friend me on Facebook, you'll find out quickly how often I use Facebook. But anyway, you know, we use Facebook a lot. And it's the way, it's the way you can have a whole Sunday school class on Facebook. And if, and if you're going to reach rural communities, this is something that churches have never done until the last probably five, maybe seven years. But the younger people, that's, that's their way. And it's how they're going to connect to you. So we're just going to have to embrace it. You know, you just have to say, okay, I'm going to spend two days, learn how to do all this stuff. You say, well, I don't have anyone to teach me. Find some ten-year-old running around the street and ask him. <laughs> if those of you who are older get your grandkids, they can teach you how to do it. Uh, my kids are in college. I got three kids in college, and they teach me stuff all the time. They'll say, "Dad, your website looks so old. Do this," and, it, and literally in five minutes they can redo the whole thing. I say, "How did you know how to do that?" Oh, I don't know. You just do. There it is. I say, "Praise God for three kids." Anyways. Um, now, here's some interesting things. Not only do we have to embrace it for outreach, but we actually have to embrace it in the wor- worship service as well. And that's a challenge, you know. Um, now, a lot of churches have gotten to where they'll have a screen and a projector and they'll maybe have the songs up there. But it has to be more than that. Remember, the young people, that's the way they learn. They, they learn through video and through all this stuff. And when, we, when we're just a talking head standing behind the podium, the 70-year-old ladies are going, Preach it, brother. Preach it, brother. Oh, that's so good. Oh, I just love our pastor. The young people, about three minutes into it, they're doing this. How long do you think this guy's going to talk? Now, talking to the person over there, they don't pass the notes anymore. They're texting the person in the front row. Did you see her hair? Can you believe it? standing up in the back like that? You know, oh, my goodness, did you see my mother's shoes? I can't believe it's my mother. All right. They've tuned out five minutes into it. We just have to figure out how to embrace it. We just have to invest in a projector a screen but, but here's the interesting thing. We also have to learn how to light a candle, say the Lord's Prayer, and quote Psalm 23. Now, that's weird. That's really weird. But there's something strange happening in, in the postmodern community, and I don't really completely understand it. I just, I've asked them, and they don't really understand it either. But they want technology, but they also want this ancient liturgy. Now, here's what I think is causing it. I, you know, I, don't, I, can't, I, I can't prove this because no one seems to be able to answer it. But I think because the younger people only go to church for weddings funerals, and Christmas Eve services, <laughs> then when you go to a, a, a wedding or a funeral, if you go to a funeral, typically Psalm 23 is read. If you go to a wedding, a lot of times, they'll either, someone will sing the Lord's Prayer or say the Lord's Prayer, at least in the north where I'm from. I'm you know up in the north where there's a lot of Catholics. Uh, they light candles at funerals and things like that. And so I think that in their mind, since that's the only time they go to church, then those things are done at church. They don't know the meaning behind it. They don't understand any of it, but that's church. Of course, and then they come on Sunday morning and we don't do the only thing they think you're supposed to do at church is those three things. So somehow you have to have all that and light a candle and say the Lord's Prayer. It's again, try convincing your Southern Baptist church they should say the Lord's Prayer every week. It's probably not going to go over real well. People aren't going to do that. All right. They'll do that responsive reading and drone through it, all right, but they're not going to do the Lord's Prayer. Now, which is more biblical. But anyway, so you you know, when you start a new church, you just have to figure it out. You have to do it from the beginning, and you just build it in, and you can have both, like super modern and really kind of ancient liturgy, all woven together. It especially works if you explain, if you explain to them what the Lord's Prayer actually means, then they think it's cool. Yes, I'll tell you how we do it. Um, we, you, if if you, it helps to be friends with the with the principal or the someone in the elementary school or the middle school, uh, ask them if you can go hang out in the lunchroom for two or three days one week and just see what's happening in the lunchroom. And if they're all texting and talking and all that kind of stuff in the lunchroom, then they're there. If they're not, then that just means it hasn't hit your community yet. You can learn a lot in 30 minutes in a lunchroom at a public school. That's how you kind of gauge the, the, the picture that for middle schoolers or, or high schoolers, and you can figure that out. So, and, and typically, again, remember, I'm only a few hours away from major cities. I think the closer you are to a city, the more likely. If you're within an hour of a big city, much more likely for these ideas to be in your community. If you're really way off the beaten track, I mean, I can show you a couple villages in Vermont where they don't have internet. Okay, but there, I used to be able to show you 50 villages in Vermont that don't have it. Now I can show you maybe a dozen. So, anyway, absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yeah, sure. If your town council has a website that looks like it's from the 1970s, that says something. If they have a, a Facebook page and they're twittering, <laughs> it tells you something. You know, it's uh, yeah. All right, well, the next one here is to embrace bivocationalism and lay ministry. Oh, by the way, about postmodernism, I wish we could talk a lot more about that. I actually do a whole seminar just on postmodernism in rural areas, but we're limited in time for that. But if I can give you a commercial, I do have a book in the uh, bookstore over there all about reaching the next generation to the small church and I have about three chapters that explains it anyway and it helps put my kids through college, so go buy a book. All right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I understand what you're saying. In my area it's culturally there because uh, you know the about 75% of Vermonters would say they're Catholic. In reality, 5% of Vermonters are Catholic. So you've got 70% that only go for weddings, funerals, and Christmas Eve. Um, so there is a cultural piece there. Um, but because postmoderns decide what truth is based on experiences, see, that's an experience. We all say the Lord's Prayer together. We say, um, you know, Psalm 23 together. We get to go light a candle. So that's an experience. And so I decide based on my experience. I don't know what the experience meant, but it made me feel all warm and gushy. So therefore, it must be true. That's not logical at all, but post-modernism doesn't follow logic. It follows my experiences and my relationships. So I think what you're saying is accurate, that there is a cultural piece to it, but I think because post based truth on experience, that's the one thing they experienced. They don't remember the rest of the church. It was boring. I mean, you ever been to a Lutheran service? Okay, it's boring. A few Southern Baptist churches are a little boring too. Anyway, so they, so they slept through all that, but that's the thing they did, all did together because it was experiential. Anyway. Anyway, in the book, I have a whole chapter on experiential worship and how they're looking for experiences in their worship. So you've got, you got to go get the book, Reaching the Next Generation to the Small Church. Okay, let's go to this. Embrace Bible vocationism and Lay Ministry. As I said a minute ago, a rural ministry. I mean, George, how long has Bible vocationalism been part of rural ministry? Forever? <laughs> since Jesus, since Paul for sure, right? That's right. Uh, but we struggled against it. You know, every pastor I know says, I'm going to go to this church and I'm going to build up so I can become full-time. I just hate that. I've never met a pastor who wasn't full-time. Now, I've met a lot of pastors who were not fully funded, but I've never met a part-time pastor. Excuse me, I can't do your funeral today because I'm only part-time. I've never heard that. You just somehow rearrange your schedule and you make it happen. You know, you just somehow, you do it. And what we've got to do is stop fighting it and just embrace it. Okay, we just got to embrace it. You know, and we want to be careful about this statement here. We don't have, We're being recorded here, or at least I am. So, <laughs> funding for rural church planting. Is going to be diminished in the future for a variety of reasons. And we could spend the next hour talking about all the changes at NAM and all that kind of stuff, but that wouldn't accomplish anything, so there's no point in that. But even if NAM wasn't changing all their things and focusing on the seeds, even if you took that out, reality is, is that funding in rural areas is dropping. Okay, it's hard to make a living as a farmer anymore. Every farmer I know has a hobby of farming, and he works in town with a job to subsidize his farming. Now, maybe your farming's different in your area, but that's what we have in our area, okay? Or the wife is working, and that's how they get their health insurance, and their this, and their that, and their blah, 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 because the farmer can barely survive on the farm, okay? So reality is his funding is diminishing. Manufacturing jobs that used to be in rural areas, we used to have logging in northern Vermont. The environmentalists have pretty well wiped that out. Um, It is hard to make a living in rural America. That's why everyone's moving to the cities, Because you make a lot more money there. Okay? So funding, regardless of its source, is gonna be diminished. So we have to accept that. We have to embrace that. You know, we we have for sustainable church plants to happen, they cannot be money driven. We're not gonna be able to have fully funded church planters and fully funded missionaries. It's just not gonna happen. It's just not there. And so it's a, it's a chasing dream if we keep trying. It's an unrealistic expectation. Let's just, just accept the fact. Let's accept the reality of bivocational ministry and lay ministry. Uh, now, of course, the great challenge of this is burnout. I mean, how many of us know a man who loved Jesus and loved his church? And two years into it, man, he was about ready to have a heart attack at 30 because he was just trying to do too much. You know, we have got to teach people uh, to, you know, the, to, the idea of, of delegation. We have to help church planters realize... Actually, let me just put the rest of these up here. Oops, there we go. We have to help people realize that God never intended for the pastor to do all the ministry on his own. Somehow we have created this kind of superhero status of pastor where the pastor preaches all the sermons and makes all the visits and chairs all the committees and, and cuts the grass and turns the lights on and vacuums the carpet. Just show me anywhere in the Bible where that's the way it was supposed to be when we look in the New Testament we won't have time to look at these scriptures here but you go home and look at them everywhere we look in the New Testament there was a team of people who were working with the pastor God never intended the pastor to do it alone whether you want to use a deacon structure which is very Southern Baptist or whether you want to use an elder structure which is more reformed or if you want to use a pastoral staff structure I don't know how you can do that in a rural church but that's basically what big churches like this one have done they've just hired 25 staff members All right, And, and it's a team approach and if you don't use a team approach you're going to kill yourself whether you're fully funded or whether you're bivocational either one i mean i've known many fully funded pastors who burned out as well because they were trying to do it all and we've got to somehow teach church planters now it's hard to go to an established church and say okay now i'm not going to make all the visits the deacons are going to make some of the visits yeah that's going to go over real well at the established church, when I first moved to Vermont, I went to this existing church, and the first Sunday there, and I am not musical. I love to sing, but I am not musical. I sound really good in the shower and alone in the car. That's the two places I sound good. So I went to the piano player. His name was George. I said, "So George, who leads the music on Sunday?" And he looked at me with this "you're an idiot" kind of look and said, "Well." For the 40 years I've been playing the piano in this church, the pastor has led the music. I was like, oh, Lord, help us. And so for eight years, I led the music in that church. I tried to change it. They just could not conceive of someone else leading the worship service. That's what they paid me for. Yeah. Hard to change in an established church. So we got to tell church planters from the very first Sunday, you got to find someone else to do some of that stuff. they got to do some of the this and the some of the that, or else you're going to lock yourself into a system. And we think we've got to get leaders. Where do leaders come from? There's not like a tree growing up back behind the church that we go pluck them off of. They come from the congregation. And so you got to get people from the congregation. Now, they're messed up. If you get a bunch of postmoderns, what does Becca look like with her plaid shirt and tackle box looking head? that might be your Sunday school teacher. <laughs> and we have to decide that. One of our deacons at the church that I met, we have seven deacons and three elders, and one of our deacons, his whole ear, has got all this stuff, studs and rods and stuff pick, sticking all out of it, and his name's Randy. I said, Randy, I said, you know, you're an interesting deacon. He said, yeah, I still can't figure out why you guys chose me. But he, <laughs> but he loves Jesus. <laughs> he really loves Jesus. That's a good reason for choosing, right? Good reason for choosing. So, yeah. So God never intended us to do it on our own and we really got to get a hold of that and we just got to embrace that. Now one of the things we try to tell church planters in Vermont is even if you can raise all the money in the world, still get a part-time job. And the reason is is because that way when the money runs out, you won't feel like a failure when your part-time job becomes really more important to your, to your living. And if you don't need the money from a part-time job... Uh, I know five church planters who do, (laughs) and so you're welcome to send a check. All right, hey, i got kids in college, send one to me. You know, but most guys are having a hard time raising all the money they need. But even if you could raise all the money, get a part-time job. Now, the key is is to find a part-time job that will actually help you be missional instead of just so it becomes part of your ministry instead of separate. Now, every community is going to be different, but in our community... One of the best jobs you can get all over Vermont is to become the school bus driver. Because in Vermont, there's usually just one school bus route for the whole community. It's a small little, small little community. So just think about it. You couldn't go door to door and speak to every family with kids every morning twice a day. But you can if you're the school bus driver, and they're paying $16.50 an hour, which is really good, you know, in Vermont. I don't know what it's like in your area, but it's really good. So two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, you get to say hello to every kid in town. It's not like you have to hold a, you know, write with a marker across your forehead. I'm the pastor in a small community. Fifteen minutes after you got there, everyone knew you were the pastor. And if the kid said, "Boy, my bus school bus driver," he really is a nice guy. Who do you think the single mom's going to talk to when she's looking for a male role model for her son? She's t- talking to the school bus driver. Who's the pastor? It's become a fabulous job. Another job we have WalMarts in our area, and we, you know, people in Vermont. If you, if you ever go to the websites about Vermont, they all they all hate Walmart because it takes jobs away from Main Street. But I notice there's an awful lot of cars in the parking lot every time I go. A lot of people in there. But we have these pharmacies. I don't know what a Walmart pharmacy. If you guys like it or not, maybe if you, any of you are pharmacists, you might hate Walmart pharmacies. We love them in Vermont. Those four-dollar prescriptions change people's lives. Okay, so you know what a great job to get is to be the pharmacy tech at walmart because who comes to the pharmacy someone who's sick and in need and again in a small community you know the pharmacy tech is the pastor and so you hand the thing and say oh brother bob we got two guys who are pharmacy techs oh brother bob would you pray for me and of course if your pharmacy pharmacist is not too anti-jesus you just reach across the aisle and you just say a little prayer right then for real quick and then you fulfill their subscription i mean could you get that kind of ministry if you were a fully funded pastor I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, did you ever get to pray when you were a fully funded pastor with 25 people a day? Probably not. So we can actually embrace this and make it work. And, again, there's a lot of details about this. Again, I feel like I'm doing commercials, but there's another book that I wrote over there in in the bookstore uh, called Developing Leadership Teams in the Vocational Church. Uh, We just really need to work it in and make it happen. If we don't make it happen, uh, by the way, all the stuff that I wrote came out of our experiences in Vermont. It's like we couldn't find resources, a lot of resources for big churches, a lot of resources for urban areas, not a lot of practical resources for rural stuff. So we just had to create our own. And we created them for ourselves. And then somewhere along the way, someone said, oh, you yeah, know, you should do something else with that. And so we did. Anyway, all right, let me keep talking. I thought I saw a hand somewhere. Yes? It's very common in Vermont. People are not going to respond to you real well until you've survived two winters and you're going into your third. Um, when you're going into your third winner, they say, okay, the two winners that we had didn't run him off. So the other thing you can do is buy a house. Now, of course, when you don't have a lot of money, that's a challenging thing to do. But when you buy a house, it says to the community, I'm staying at least for five or ten years because I can't make my money back <laughs> until I stay five or ten years. So that's two things we tell guys to do if they can. Uh, you know, Just stick it out for that first two years and when you, hit the, when you go into that third winter, people actually start talking to you and think, oh, maybe he's going to make it. And then if you can buy a house, which is, again, it's not always possible. Those are two things we do that work. So, and in a church plant situation, there is no parsonage. So you're either going to rent something or buy something and in today's economy with the markets depressed, sometimes you can buy a house, especially in a rural area, or not that much different than renting one. So, anyway, of course, you've got to have good credit, <laughs> which is a challenge, yeah. Well, we don't have a great network of that in Vermont. We have, in a certain part of Vermont, in the northeast, we call it the northeast kingdom, but the northeastern part of Vermont, we have a lady who actually runs a human resources like agency, and so she's been a fabulous help for us, but she basically has about a 60-mile kind of radius that she works in. So our guys there always just say, hey, call Susan, and she's going to take care of you. She'll find you a job, and she'll work it all out and make it happen. Um, other parts of Vermont, we've not had as easy a, a time. So, but I always tell them, call the school bus place first, and it's amazing how many guys say, "Call, I got, I got a job the first day." <laughs> there you go. Of course, it's only again, it's, it's just four hours a day. You know, two in the morning, two in the afternoon, but 16 bucks an hour at four hours a day is not too bad. <laughs> We actually have now, I, don't, I could not do this as a career, but we have several pastors, three in our association, who actually are doing foster parenting as a career, and one of them has like seven kids, the other has, eight, 18, has 18 at one time. Uh, some of those were his biological children, some were, I mean, you know, I couldn't do that personally. But we have several pastors. If you get up to seven or eight, you actually make a pretty good living off of it, but it's just not a way I could make my living. Um, but there are pastors who really love troubled kids that... Again, they see that as part of their ministry, and the community does too. I mean, they're thinking, wow, that, that guy's actually like rescuing kids from bad situations. So anyway, I need a little more sanity in my life than what all that would do. But anyway, uh, this next one here, we're going to just breeze through it fairly quickly here, um, embracing racial diversity. Now, established churches in rural areas may resist reaching out to people of other races, uh it kind of depends on where you're at i did serve a church in south carolina for a while where this was just taboo you know i actually i invited some african-american teenagers into the church for some activities and i had deacons using the n-word with, right in public in front of me and i was like okay wow i guess i broke one of those unwritten rules but now i was at that same church three months ago to preach and i noticed there were two african-american families sitting in the audience and so i was rejoicing that in 20 years something had changed so praise god for that um but some churches are not there just depends on the church there are places where that's going to be difficult, but new churches don't have to deal with that. New churches can, from the very beginning, consider being a multiracial church from the start. Um, and you know, we have two churches in Vermont doing this now, where they've purposely kind of targeted. They're calling themselves international churches, whatever that means, you know. And they're just trying to reach. They're trying to reach a younger audience, and younger people don't think anything about this. All right, they all go to school together, they play sports together, they date each other, they don't think anything about any of that kind of stuff. So, if you want to reach uh, a younger audience in your rural area start trying to talk about some of this kind of stuff. It's important to younger generations, much more so than it is to older generations. But don't misunderstand. There are places where ethnic church planning is essential because of language barriers. I mean, if you're in an area with a strong Hispanic community and they all only speak Spanish, well, then you probably need to start a Spanish church so they can all speak Spanish together because obviously they're not going to be able to understand what you're saying otherwise, okay? So we're not saying that you shouldn't do that, but we may have to decide that in some rural areas there may not be enough of any particular group to create a stable base for an ethnic church. Now, Vermont is the second whitest state in the nation, so we don't have a lot of ethnic diversity, uh, but we have a little bit, but not much. So the particular church that I'm currently the pastor of, I'm a pastor as well as being the director of missions for the state, uh, You know, we, we have an African-American family that's been coming from the very beginning, great people, they love the Lord, and, and the husband's on our worship team plays the... the What are those big drums? Conga drums, whatever they are. Anyway, and so we had an African family showed up. Not African-American, but African, great Christian people. And they'd been visiting. They'd moved to the area. They'd been visiting churches. And it wasn't that any church made them feel uncomfortable. It's just every church they went into was just all white people. And there they were. Well, they walked into our church, and there was just one black man. And it was like, oh, 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 black man. This must be a church that's okay for us. Well, guess what? Africans know Africans. So now we have two families from Nigeria, one from Rwanda, um, one from Ghana. Uh, Interesting enough, we have two families from Korea and one from from Ethiopia. And what's the other Asian place? China. And the Philippines. And I'm not quite sure how that has to do with Africans, but basically they step in the room and see anything different And they know, okay, it must be okay for us to come here. And we want our children to feel comfortable here. And these are actually all Christian families. Actually, the most stable Christian families I have in my my church. Remember, I got emo rednecks. Okay, so the most stable Christians in my church are actually my immigrants from other countries because they've been Christians for years and they're solid. All right, it's my white people who are all messed up. Anyway, so so you may have to do some of that in order to just get a base together. But that attracts young people and you can reach because most of these people are not going to be able to go to the established church in town. They're not, unless your established church really has a pastor who's worked hard on this area. Okay, and the farther south you go, the stronger that is. All right, so we just got to do that. All right, I don't know how I got into that. What have we done here? Well, we'll figure it out. Yeah, that's that technology stuff. All right, Um, here's another one. Second-generation ethnic groups are less interested in the church that's focused only on one ethnicity. We're finding this in New England a lot. Now, not as much in Vermont where I'm at, but in New England, you know, that first generation wants to go to a church that speaks Spanish or Japanese or Korean or whatever, but their kids aren't interested in that. Uh, They want to go to a a church just kind of multi-ethnic. So we're having to start new churches for second generation ethnic people who want to have a worship service in English, and they want all the colors of the rainbow there. That's important to them. Um, so we're going to have to have some churches that embrace that from the beginning. I won't talk a lot more about that, but that's something we just have to do. All right, now here's one. Let me just... We're running out of time here. Let's get through this here. Um, Use existing church buildings when possible. I'm going to tell you why. We do this a lot in Vermont. We probably have acquired... Oh, gosh, probably 15 church buildings in the last few years. Uh, when, when Johnny Hunt said he'd been given six or whatever, or three, or whatever it was in the last few years, I said, boy, you got nothing on me. Anyway, we get them all. I've got, I got a line of people who want me to take them now, okay? A growing number of rural churches close each year. Now, in my area, they're mostly congregational churches and Methodist churches. In your area, they're probably Southern Baptist churches. But anyway, a growing number close each year. And these buildings can often be acquired for very little money, and need only minor innovations, so it's a relatively inexpensive way to get a church going, all right? So far, we've not bought a building yet. We have offered to buy buildings, and usually when the little old lady who's the trustee of it finds out that we're going to restart it and it's going to be filled with people again who are praising Jesus and, and loving the Lord, she'll say, oh, I'll just sign it over to you. And so you've got to put a new roof on, and that's $30,000. You've got to put a new furnace in, that's $10,000. So for $40,000, we've got a building. You tried to build anything lately? <laughs> you tried to buy anything lately? Even in a rural community, you can't do it for $40,000. So, boom. Now, <clears throat> what I find interesting about having a church building that looks like a church, I don't know if this is true in urban areas, but in rural areas, many people see the church building as the place where weddings and funerals and Christmas Eve services, all that stuff is happening. So, therefore, they're looking for a place to hold such a ceremony. They want a church building. If they're going to go to church, they want it to look like a church building. Now, you know... <laughs> We all know theologically the church is not the building. It's the people. We understand that. But these people don't know the Bible. Okay, They don't know that theology. And so if they're going to go to church, they're looking for something that looks like a church. And so Christmas Eve rolls around, and they say, let's go. And they don't care whether it's Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian. They say, there's a church. There's something happening down there at that place, and it's Christmas Eve. We should all go have a warm, fuzzy experience. And so they're going to go Christmas Eve. Oh, we've been living together for eight years. It's finally time to get married. We should look for a church to get married in. Yeah, I know. That's a challenge, too. Okay, but... that's what they're looking for grandpa died none of us go to church anywhere but some minister ought to say a few nice words at him and we're looking for a church building so we have found that when we build brand new buildings in rural areas we actually struggle to get lost people to come to them we can get all the christians to come to it they love brand new buildings but the lost people are a little bit nervous about that it needs to look like a church because in their mind again remember they, they make decide what truth is based on experiences And these are the experiences they've had in church buildings. So find them. There's lots of them out there, growing, growing, more and more everywhere. Um, Now, this is a little controversial, but providing religious ceremonies for postmodern people to participate in is very important to helping them feel like they belong. And let me just take a little word about that. Postmodern people do want to belong before they believe. And we could go on and on and on and on theologically about that statement for the next 20 years and probably not satisfy everyone in the room. But it's just the way they think it's the way they make decisions it's the way they feel about things so we have to decide what we're going to do about it It doesn't mean they want to join the church organization that's not what they mean by when they say I want to belong it means they want to be feel part of the group relationally so we do a funeral for them maybe we do a wedding for them again we could debate that back and forth but maybe we'll do that if we're comfortable with it I don't know whatever it is we're comfortable with Maybe we let them dedicate their children. You know, I have a lot of interesting conversations with former Catholics who want me to baptize their children. And when I explain to them that we don't do that, but we do this over here, and this is what it means, they go, oh, well, that's actually what I want to do anyway. Okay, let's talk about that. All right, and we have a whole bunch of them in our church now. You know, when we are willing to provide those kind of things, it's amazing how many unchurched people we can gather in a church fairly quickly. Um, but it's, it needs to be in a building that looks like a church, at least in our experience it's been that way. Does that make sense? yes sir I agreed exactly hundred percent with what Johnny Hunt said this morning if you're in his session he said you got to be in control We've done it the wrong way, and then we learned, having done it the wrong way, to do it the right way. We used to just let them join the association. Well, that's just disaster, because what they're wanting us to do is subsidize the six of them meeting in that building for the next 50 years. So what I say to them now is, you must sign the building over to us. There's a piece of Baptist polity you'll have to struggle with, all right, and disband your congregation, and then we will be in control, and we will make all the decisions, and then in five years, if your church is healthy, we'll give it all back to you. Anyway, now... When I have that conversation, some of them go, Oh, that ain't happening. I say, Well, that's where it is. Because if you want to have your five people to keep having your little country club, pay for it yourself, do your own thing. But if you want to reach people for Jesus, your way isn't working. (laughs) I got a way that'll work, but you got to let me do it. And um, the ones that have been willing to do it, it's been amazing. And when you have that service five years later, when you give it back to them, you know, and you sign the deed, we usually do it on Sunday morning, have a big celebration. I mean, it's a huge, huge thing for them. Yes, we change it all. And we tell them, if there's anything in this building that you want of historical value, you better get it before the last service because we're going we're gonna to throw everything out. There's going to be nothing left. We get rid of the Bibles, the hymn books. We get rid of everything. Um, we keep the pews, you know, because it's just, it's just too much because somebody gave everything in memory of somebody and it's just too much. So we say, if it, if it means something to your grandmother, take it. And, and they actually love that. So people got stuff hanging on their walls at home, whatever. All right, let's see. We got to stop here. Just um, quick. Uh, read all that quickly. <laughs> I wish I had time to talk about this. Uh, we don't have time. Anyway, I'll tell you what, if, you, if you're interested in this, I have ten printed copies of this, and I actually have the whole presentation on a thumb drive if you're interested in it. At some point, it's great to get this church building. Yes? Yes. Now, that's actually great, and I probably should have this in here, but that wasn't part of the little... <laughs> never mind. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> yes, actually, we had never tried prayer walking. Uh, I know you've got to do your thing here. I'm sorry. We ne- but this is good. That's a great question. We had never done prayer walking. Uh, in the five years before we discovered prayer walking, uh, 100% of our missions failed. I'm giving you the short version. 100%. That's great to go give a report to the board, the 100% failure rate of all your missions. Then someone gave us a little booklet that IMB had put together on prayer walking, and we thought, oh, that makes sense. So now we prayer walk. Our first one, uh, we invited college students to come on their spring break, and just prayer walk this little town of Chelsea. And we didn't know if 20 college students would show up or 50 or whatever. Anyway, during about three weeks of various spring breaks, 300 college students descended on this little tiny town of 1,000 in Vermont and just prayed all over it. And then the very people who were opposing our church plan showed up to the church that I was pastoring, which was a sponsored church, and said, you guys think you'd help us plant a church over there? I was like, uh, yeah. Anyway, so since instituting prayer walking about eight years ago, we've had two failures. Almost 100% success rate too. So yes, prayer is important and I, I would love to have a whole session on that. All right, I wish I had time to go more, but we don't. But if you're interested in the, in the uh, thing here, it's on this thumb drive along with a lot of other good stuff. You can have a-